It's good to be with you. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It's in your pew Bible on page 810. And while you are turning there, I will take the liberty of a quick RUF update. If you don't know uh, our denomination, the PCA has a campus ministry in which um, we take some of our pastors and instead of giving them a church, we give them a, a college campus. And so, mine is Hendricks College over in Conway. I spend my days there uh, with students talking about faith and life and uh, all kinds of different things, other things. <laughs> um, and uh, so two things you can be uh, praying for if you, if you think about it. Uh, first is our year-end fundraising. We raise money uh, like missionaries. And so you can imagine the next couple days uh, as we close the year out are important for us. And uh, along with that, we thank you as a church and many of you individually for uh, your support. And uh, the second thing is our... Uh, winter conference, which is coming up um, uh, the first week of February, uh, and that's with a, a bunch of other RUFs from uh, sort of Mississippi and uh, West Tennessee, and uh, it's it's um, going to be a, a big deal to to get students there because my wife and I are having um, our third child in May. Um, very exciting. So we will miss our annual summer conference. So uh, the winter conference will be very important. I think the first time I stood up here, I didn't have uh, any children. Um, when I visited you maybe five years ago, six years ago, I don't know when we moved here. So uh, thank you for your prayers. Uh, if you'd like updates about our ministry with RUF in Conway, uh, you can uh, ask me after the service or shoot me an email at bradfordgreen at ruf.org. So Matthew 5, 13 through 16, this is Jesus speaking. <coughs> you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it never goes out and returns to you empty. It always accomplishes its purposes, and we pray that that would be so this morning. We pray that uh, you would speed your word to us uh, deep into our hearts, and that you would teach us from it, uh, and uh, reprove us and rebuke us if need be, and call us closer to yourself through it. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to think for a few minutes about with you about what an oxymoron is. I don't want to insult your intelligence here, but uh, just to define it quickly, an oxymoron is when you take two very different things 
and put them together in a way that technically, formally does not make any sense, and yet we use it as a sort of rhetorical device, so uh, a deafening silence, controlled chaos, short sermons. These are all things that don't go together, uh, and yet we use them. Uh, Phrases like this all the time, we make jokes about them, about how uh, you drive on a parkway, but you park on a driveway. I think my dad mentioned that the other night. Um, and I, one I heard recently, uh, we bake cookies, but we cook bacon. So figure that out. Uh, oxymorons. Christianity in particular has a, a lot of these, or maybe to put a finer point on it, uh, Christianity is full of paradoxes. An oxymoron being a, a type of Uh, many paradox. Jesus himself is like a fountain of these things. Some of them are small, some of them are big conceptual paradoxes for our lives. Uh, Jesus says we have to be weak to be strong, we have to be humbled so we can be lifted up, and we have to die so that we can live. These are important things in Christianity. And so all of this is to say that Christianity is paradoxical. It does not work the way the world works. And because of that, Christians are different. If there is a a grain in this world, then Christians cut against that grain. And we tend to think a little differently about, uh, for instance, emotions like anger and lust, about marriage and sex and authority, about the poor and about serving other people about anxiety and fear, and even about things like Christmas and maybe New Year's resolutions. Christians are a little bit different. Jesus talks about many of these things, and many of the ways in which Christians are different in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where our passage situates itself. It's right after the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus' most famous sermon, probably the most famous sermon in the history of of the world. And so Jesus rolls out these two paradoxes. He talks about saltless salt, and he talks about a hidden lamp. We might say a lamp that is not lamping. A lot of people think that the Sermon on the Mount is a sort of moral manifesto of Jesus, and that is not entirely untrue, but there is sort of more that's happening here Sermon on the Mount is more about the kingdom of God, or as Matthew calls it, the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus comes as a new king. He's bringing a new kingdom, a new way of life that is connected to the old Jewish system, the law, the old way of doing things for God's people. Jesus talks about the law right after our passage, but it is much more than that. Uh, Jesus is introducing something new. When you come into a new place or culture or system, you have to learn a new way of doing things, a new set of rules. And so how do Jesus' followers begin to understand uh, this new kingdom that they have come into? How would you understand it if your life and your culture and your way of doing things were suddenly turned on their head? Uh, You may have experienced this at Christmas if you traveled and stayed with someone else, or if you had uh, people come and stay with you. Things get thrown off, right? Or more, um, I think 
Uh, a, a better illustration would be if you were transplanted to a new country. That would be disorienting and difficult and scary. But the people that Jesus is talking to here have made that jump. They have uh, immigrated, if you will, into the kingdom from darkness to light, from sin to salvation. And so the Sermon on the Mount in particular is, is addressed to Christians, to citizens of a new kingdom. So what's really happening here, I think John Stott put it best, is Jesus is answering what influence be attitudes people can have uh, on the world. In other words, what influence can meek, poor in spirit, peaceful, persecuted Palestinian peasants have on the world? And his answer is a major influence. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I mean, this, think about how crazy this would have sounded uh, at this moment when Jesus says this. Uh, we're familiar with Christianity as a, a, a power, right? Uh, on the world religious scene, if you will. Uh, but at this point, Jesus is talking and Christians are a uh, tiny sect, a sort of fringe, sort of sliver of Jewishness. We might say Christianity is still being formed in the womb when Jesus says this. And so this idea that, uh, that Christians could be the light, uh, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, would have a, a really hard punch, I think, at this time. And also because of uh, the two illustrations that Jesus uses. These things, salt and light. Two relatively important uh, but relatively rare things in the ancient world, salt and light. People had these things, but you couldn't go to Kroger and buy a big box of clean uh, salt. You couldn't um, uh, flip on a light switch and have a light in your home, of course. So people had these things, but if you had salt that wasn't salting, if you had a lamp that wasn't lamping, then you had a major problem in your household. So let's break down what Jesus says here in three parts. First, what Jesus assumes. Second, what Jesus promises. And third, what Jesus is getting at. So Jesus assumes some things. He promises some things. And I think there's a sort of overarching main point that Jesus is getting at. So first of all, what does Jesus assume? Well, one good Bible reading rule that I tell my students is this. Whatever the Bible says, the Bible says. But also whatever the Bible implies, the Bible also says. In other words, a good question to ask as you read a passage is, what has to be true in order for Scripture to say this? Scripture doesn't imply anything that is not true. So what is Jesus presupposing here? I think a couple things. First, that Christians are different than the world, which we've talked about. But second, that the church and the world are two communities heading in opposite directions. What Jesus is presupposing about the world, what he is implying, is that the world tends towards chaos. Now, I am not a, a scientist, and if there are scientists in here, feel free to correct me later on. Um, but as I understand it, 
entropy, the second law of thermodynamics uh, in science at least echoes this idea that the world tends towards chaos. Literature, I think, does too. I remember in high school reading a book called Things Fall Apart. I don't remember what the book was about. Uh, It doesn't sound like a feel-good story or a comedy. Uh, Things Fall Apart. Most of us would probably uh, agree with that uh, at certain times. And the physical world, I think, also reflects this. Think about how much more difficult it is to make a coffee cup than it is to break a coffee cup. I break a lot of coffee cups, so I know. Or if you have seen a house uh, that maybe has been abandoned, left alone, it's amazing how quickly it just sort of returns to earth, right? Things fall apart. The same is true, I think, in more internal or moral terms. I read a book uh, earlier in the year uh, that at one point was quite famous. It's been made into a movie a number of times. It's called The Four Feathers. And in The Four Feathers, uh, a young British officer resigns his commission right before his um, section of the military, I don't know, his brigade, uh, will say, ships off to war in the Sudan. And he claims that he resigns so that he can get married uh, to his sweetheart. But three of his soldier friends send him a feather, which signifies cowardice. And then when his uh, fiance finds out about it, she adds a fourth feather. All of these people have declared that he is a coward. And so <clears throat> in one night, his decision to resign as a soldier ruins his friendships, his future marriage, his relationship with his father as well, who is a retired general. So what does he do? Well, he puts the feathers in his pocket and he disappears into the war zone and he lives for years on the streets he becomes something like an undercover agent he risks his life he fights against his fear and eventually one by one he gets all these people to take their feather back and finally his uh his former fiance uh and they end up together so the point is in one night uh he was labeled a coward. It only took one decision, but it took many years for him to earn his honor back. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your own life, or you know someone who has thrown their life away in a moment. It's usually not a moment, right? It's usually a succession of little moments, little decisions, but things tend to fall apart quickly, That is how sin works. That's how temptation and pride and scandal work. And so Jesus assumes that things in this world fall apart. But here is what Jesus promises. In a broken world tending towards disorder, Christians push back. Salt and light push back against disorder and decay. Um, think of these two things. Why salt? It's a very mundane substance for Jesus to pick. But one of the reasons uh, is that while salt is uh, still important to this day, salt back then was uh, extremely important 
for preserving meat. Meat tends to go bad, right? And if you eat it after it's gone bad, then you tend to go bad. Uh, that's, you know, things do fall apart very quickly uh, when you eat meat that is no longer good. So nowadays, <coughs> food companies do that preserving for us, so we don't have to think about it too much. But in the ancient world, salt for preservation and uh, salt for taste as well, which Jesus mentions more explicitly here, was priceless. I mean, reading the description here from a book called Salt, A World History, a substance so valuable it served as currency, salt has influenced the establishment of trade routes in cities, provoked and financed wars, and inspired revolutions. Homer called it a divine substance. And it's also an essential part of your body. If your body doesn't have enough salt in it, you experience something called hyponatremia, which you can uh, actually die from. So you, Christians, are the salt of the earth, says Jesus. In other words, Christians are a preservative in a world that tends to fall apart. Christians make the world taste better, we might say, when we bring joy and mercy, and love, and peace, and patience. All the fruits of the Spirit, all of the blessings of a new kingdom to a world that is so full of the opposite that it is bland. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think that sin is pretty bland. Uh, Not the first time, probably, right? But uh, sin always wants a little something more. It always wants you to take it a little bit farther and take a little more the next time, I think that is because sin has to go for a sort of shock value because in reality, it is empty. It's tasteless. It can't bring you true joy. It can't fix you. So we'll come back to salt. What about light? Well, light is even more important to the sustaining of the world. Remember, darkness was first. God made the light. Genesis 1 is darkness in disorder before light comes. When Dante followed Virgil into hell, he said it was a place dumb of every glimmer of light. Experiments have showed us that to be in total darkness for an extended period of time unhinges us. It was a a cave researcher uh, who stayed for about six months Uh, in a cave in Texas, and he got so lonely that, I assume using a a flashlight of some sort, he spread jam on the floor of the cave uh, and tried to trap a mouse with a dish towel. And when he missed it and the mouse ran off, he wrote in his diary, desolation overwhelms me. Why? Because to be in total darkness is to be cut off, is to be isolated is to be utterly alone so without light we lose our humanity we lose our relationships we might even lose our minds you are the light of the world jesus says in other words your good works christians crack open penetrate the darkness remember john 1 when jesus shows up the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If you are in Christ, then you have that kind of light in you. 
One of my favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. Uh, he wrote a book called The Road, uh, which was turned into a movie that you may have seen. I've never seen the movie, but in the book, a father and his son are living in a post-apocalyptic sort of wasteland, and they're trying to get south so that uh, they will not die in the winter. And uh, to get south, they have to avoid gangs of marauders and cannibals. And at one point, the boy says to his father, he says, we're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? His father says, yes, we are. The son says, and nothing bad is going to happen to us. The father says, that's right, because we're carrying the fire. Yes, the boy says, because we are carrying the fire. Jesus says that Christians are carrying the fire. Metaphorically, we are carrying the the light of the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God. We carry it into our homes, into our work, uh, into our families and relationships, in all circumstances. And so by Jesus working in and through Christians, they have uh, what John Stott says is a double influence. On the one hand, arresting decay, uh, think of salt, and positively, on the other hand, bringing light to darkness. Now, what does that look like in in real life? Um, In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just told us to be salt and light is to be beatitudes people, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek and lowly, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful and pure in heart, and to be peacemakers. So we don't have time course, to work through all of those, but if I could take a couple of them just as sort of quick case studies to flesh out what Jesus means when he calls Christians to be salt and light in this world. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, This is another paradox, right? Jesus is basically saying that sadness leads to joy. I listened to a podcast recently that featured a guy named Ken Jennings, who is somewhat famous for being the greatest Jeopardy player of all time. And uh, Ken Jennings has a big Twitter presence. He's very funny. Um, And so it was an interesting argument that he made on this podcast where he sort of pushed back against the state of humor in our world. And he pointed out that everything really up to and including celebrity deaths and uh, international geopolitical policy, that all of those things are just cause for jokes now. He's talking mainly on social media, but I think this is true uh, in society as a whole. And Jennings, who is not a Christian, as far as I know, in fact, I'm almost positive he's not, has said uh, that he has noticed a decline in sincerity and earnestness amongst people, uh, so that people have lost their ability to react appropriately in situations where humor just doesn't really work. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. You see the connection there. Uh, Christians are called to something different, to enter into the hard places, 
the hard conversations and to refuse to sort of sidestep the reality of sin and brokenness in uh, the world around us, but in ourselves as well. In other words, as Christians, we mourn for the sin and brokenness out there in the world, but we also mourn for the sin and brokenness uh, inside of us and repent of it. And paradoxically, I think that type of mourning allows humor, when sort of properly employed, to retain its joy and allow us to rejoice. Christians weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Laughter being a type of rejoicing, of course. But Jesus says, darkness before light, mourning before joy. Another way that Christians are called to be salt and light is to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is order, it's safety. It's sort of the opposite of darkness and disorder. To bring peace is to reflect the heart of God, who is a peacemaker himself. It's to to live out the grace that brought us peace when we were still sinners. Paul, of course, says that it was Jesus who made peace by the blood of his cross. It was Jesus who came down and took on flesh uh, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be reconciled as he fulfilled the law and took our punishment on himself and gives us righteousness in return. And that is really the rub here, right? That's If, if you sort of took what Jesus is saying... I think, and distilled it down, it's this, that Christians can be salt and light to the world because Jesus has already been salt and light in our own hearts. In other words, His love has shot light into the darkness of our hearts. And the blood of His sacrifice preserves us when sin is working to disorder our lives and our relationships And Jesus says, essentially, that work of grace in you, do not hide that. Let it out. Let it be seen. Let it shine. Let the world taste it. But then he says this, If salt is not salty, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And he says, do not let the light be hidden under a bushel or a meal tub or or whatever uh, we have. John Stott puts it this way. He says, You are light, so you must let your light shine and not conceal it, whether by sin or by compromise, by laziness or by fear. And he says, Don't blame the world. He says, uh, We can't blame unsalted meat for going bad. The question is, where is the salt? Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community. Amen, right? Salt is for rubbing. Light is for shining in your life, uh, in the life of Trinity Fellowship, uh, in the life of North Little Rock. And there's really only one thing to add here, and that is the why. It is so that, Jesus says, they, meaning the world, can see your good works and give glory 
to your Father who is in heaven. And that is the end of it all. God's glory, the highest good. And that is important to remember because it is very difficult to be salt and light. If you think about what those two things have in common, it's that they give of themselves. They act on other things. So Christians are called to bring comfort and peace in situations where there is no comfort and peace. So one final illustration, if I may. Next time you have the the charcoal lit, maybe you got a nice ribeye about to go on, uh, take some good chunky kosher salt, put it all over the steak, and leave it for a little while. And when you come back, the salt will be gone. It will have been absorbed. It will have disappeared into the meat, and you won't be able to see it. But when you eat the steak, you will know that it's there. I think that's a little bit like being a Christian. To be meek and poor in spirit, to bring grace and mercy and love and peace means giving yourself away. I think it means uh, disappearing in some sense so that God's kingdom can go forward. But our hope and our understanding is that our king is so strong that he holds us so fast that our ultimate end is so secure that we can say, even now to our heavenly father, I'm going to echo what the little boy said to his father in the road. We're going to be okay, aren't we, Papa? And nothing bad is going to happen to us because we're carrying the fire of the light and life and love of Christ. Let me pray for us. <coughs> Father, um, we don't know how to be salt and light in and of ourselves. Um, we barely know how to, how to survive in this world in and of ourselves. And so we pray that you would teach us that you would show us uh, how to be more like your son uh, in our homes, with our families, at work, in the community, in our church home. We pray that, um, that you would make us uh, salt to uh, preserve and to give flavor, and that you would make us light uh, in the darkness, that we might reflect you, and that we might glorify you, and that we might be more and more like Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.